Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And it, it is indeed Mayor's Monday on Talk the Talk and WHMP. And we welcome to our show the Mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. I'm so pleased you could be with us today to tell us what more about what was in the news late last week, which is that the school system in East Hampton has postponed for a year its naming of a new superintendent. Uh, the interim will remain as the super for the next year. And I'm wondering if you could give us some insights into why, what's happening, and how the school system is functioning after the uh, very contentious non-hiring of a superintendent that started with the, as I'm sure you <laughs> well remember, the, mm-hmm. yes, the ladies' comment. So tell us about mm-hmm. the schools. Where do things stand? Yeah, I mean, I look at our approach to the the schools and the superintendent search and, and um, you know, having an interim for a second year, like a, a promise made and a promise kept uh, during both of the searches, um, city, I'm sorry, well, blah, um, school committee um, said over and over again they would listen to uh, the public and various stakeholders about the next superintendent um, uh, search being um, uh, more paced out, more public um, input, but also after an input session or an interview, that there be more time for members of the community and the school committee to kind of absorb what um, what the interview or the site visit uh, made. The last superintendent search was unusual in that the amount of time we had once. Um, Superintendent Allison LeClaire gave was shorter than usual, certainly, you know, not in a a negative. It's just what it was. Um, This year, we want to take a full year. We really want to take a look at it. I'd proposed uh, just a kind of a a very draft um, timeline of, uh, of what we might be doing over the next year for that search. I said in the last uh, school committee meeting, Department of Education expects us to continue to look, to continue to post, and, and we're planning on doing that. Um, but the process and laying out the search process will take um, more definite steps in January. We also have a new school committee, a couple of new members, um, but also some loss of, uh, loss of our chair, uh, Cindy Kwasinski, who's been um, in public service now for the last uh, six years, eight years, um, and and that's you know certainly um, a, a loss. We also have a new business manager, so we want to take the time to do it right um, rather than rush into starting a search again in January, which is it's just a quick turnaround. Do you have a timeline in mind? I mean, can we say with some assurance that by X date or month, the East Hampton School Committee and the city will have made an offer to a superintendent uh, applicant? We, well, right now, I, you know, definitely we will be making offers so a superintendent can start on July 1st of 20, oh gosh, it's just so 2025. Um, 
but perhaps sooner than that. I, you know, it's, um, I just presented kind of a, a sketch out to let people know what a timeline could look like. And we haven't at all defined that or uh, made that permanent. And I don't expect that to happen until the second meeting in January or the first meeting in February. Um, right now we're kicking off our, our budget process on top of holidays, on top of um, you know bringing on new members and new leadership. I'd like to go back to something you just mentioned, Mayor Nicola Chappelle, and that is the necessity for the state to sign off on this. The first paragraph of the Daily Hampshire Gazette story said, quote, Interim Superintendent Maureen Vinienda will lead the school district for another year after the school committee agreed this week, that was last week, to extend her contract by one year contingent on waivers from the state in a six-to-one vote. Is the state going to pose a problem for continuing the interim superintendent's uh, tenure with with the city? We just got our second. So the state um, waivers go in six months period. So July to January and then January to June. So we just received our um, second waiver from now until June. And we'll document our process on finding a permanent superintendent, which the Department of Education, um, you know, mandates it under their regulations, and we're making um, we're making those provisions now to keep that documentation. That will go in to our our third waiver um, March first for the consideration of July to January. Um, we don't expect any issue with the Department of Education as far as. Um, the interim superintendent's qualifications and wanting to stay. Um, but we do have to prove our case. And there have been other super, uh, other departments who have had interims for two years for very similar reasons. I think um, East Hampton has a compelling case in what happened to our, in our last two superintendent searches and also those timelines. And the communities really demand that the process uh, be more full, but also over more time so folks can react to a tremendous amount of information that comes in during a superintendent search. Madam Mayor, I, I don't mean to say that the state has to do this because the state doesn't have to do mm-hmm. anything, but if the state doesn't give you approval, doesn't give the city of East Hampton approval to continue with an interim superintendent, then there is no superintendent, interim or otherwise. And so mm-hmm. it seems to me that the state has to do this as a practical matter. Am I missing something here? Um, uh, certainly the Department of Education um, and the Department of Secondary and Elementary Education uh, has no obligation to do anything. Um, they can, you know, say no to the waiver, yes to waiver, or I don't know, you know, ignore it. But in the case that we would not get that waiver in March, we would turn, uh, we would go internally um, and, and have somebody step in um, candidly. What I would do with that, um, when somebody steps in, um, we would, I shouldn't say we would, um, the city and myself would put forward a strong proposal to get a mentor for that internal candidate who is going to serve as the interim. I would like to ask you uh, about uh, how this search will differ, if at all, from the last one. I know, Buzz, you have something you want to ask the mayor. So I did. Um, 
Mayor, th- there are a lot of communities that have been looking. I don't remember a time when there's so many communities looking for a superintendent as there has been in this region the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how East Hampton, it's a national search. How do you uh, distinguish East Hampton for candidates uh, from all the other places nationwide, all the other districts that are looking for superintendents? Well, I mean, one, you know, we're the strongest um, municipality in the nation. I mean, so that's that stands out for us. Um, but I, I forgot that. that. Yeah. Did you? Oh, I'll send you a note. Okay. Uh, but, you're, you know, so East Hampton, what does distinguish it is that we're a small district. We have two basically brand new schools. Uh, we have high retention rate uh, among our faculty. We have strong parent participation and strong um, activities by our students. Our community supports um, our schools. I think of the East Hampton Learning Foundation. I think of sport opportunities. I think of the drama club. Um, You know, it is a dynamic place um, to work um, as well as teach and and learn on on both sides of that, of students and, and faculty. And this, the community is willing and open to a dynamic superintendent candidate who wants to evolve along with us. And I, I think that really makes East Hampton attractive. Um, you know, I, I now am like ticking off a of little things in my head um, what, you know, what East Hampton has to to offer as if, I mean, you know, who has a pond in their downstairs and in their downtown, um, <laughs> you think of our playing fields. And I mean, you, you drive down the road looking at Mountain View school on a 26 acre campus and it's, it's stunning. Um, and that's also becoming a community, um, uh, place. So I think there's just, um, there's a lot of, um, small stuff that add up to important stuff and very attractive. And just a small follow-up. Well, uh, given the tumult around the superintendency in East Hampton the last year or so, um, Mm -hmm. number one, I assume you'll be hiring a consultancy to help with this search. And number two, will the public be involved? Will Will the search be as transparent as possible under the law? I am um, really pushing for a consultant uh, to come in uh, and and make sure that the search is wide, but also is very aware of the procedural steps. It is a vote of the entire school committee. We haven't really talked about that, but I'm on board, um, you know, with with uh, suggesting a consultancy to help us through uh, that process. The tumult around our last two. Um, superintendent uh, candidates, you know, I don't, I don't want to put it, it, I think it goes to the intentionality and the awareness of our community. And that's for those who are supportive of any one candidate or who weren't. And a back and forth, there are um, six people elected to be on school committee and then the mayor, by virtue of being the mayor, who had to weigh in the balance all of those perspectives. And I think we came to the right conclusion. Um, And I think that gives prospective candidates um, an assurance that there is fairness. Um, There's a lot of uh, consideration by the school committee and um, as well as uh, the head administration in, in the building. So I'm not... 
I don't want to say I'm worried or not worried, but I think we need to put forward um, the strengths of our department, but also um, if asked by candidates uh, what the context was. Um, you know, we certainly, if, if anything, uh, I would probably go back in time and have been working, you know, and um, bringing on somebody with communications, but also messaging to help us through this very, those very two unusual um, tumultuous uh, job offers. Let me follow up, if I might, Mayor Nicole Chappelle. Will you be uh-huh. asking the city council for a financial order to hire a consultant? No, that'll come out of the school budget. And is there money in the budget that can accommodate this? Yes. Okay. I would like to know your feelings. Do you think the last two searches um, are going to cause impose an impediment to the search for a superintendent this time? I mean, I think if you're reading the Daily Mail in London and social media, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, quite honestly, if that's what a superintendent candidate is concerned about, then they're not the right, you know, fit for us. I mean, it doesn't mean they're uh, a weaker candidate. It's just, you, you know, you have to put this all into, I, I expect our candidate certainly not be ready for that, but understand that it did happen and ask clarifying questions um, that they need to. But if, if somebody's walking in the door into an interview and saying, you know, I heard about these last two superintendent searches and I would like assurances or I want to da 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 I mean, that's not a conversation. That's a, you know, you're, you know, we're not looking for somebody who's walking in the door asking about something at that point will happen 18 months in the past um, that indeed blew up on um, social media and, and different, you know, media outlets across the world. I mean, it's certainly not putting down the press, but the reality is the, I mean, the clickbait and the unbelievable mastery and effort into getting this story out by, by particular candidates um, was really stunning. I, I did not see that coming. And, you know, talk about a consultant or somebody to help us with messaging or read the tea, tea leaves. We, I think we, you know, we missed it on that one. We are speaking with the mayor of East Hampton, Nicola Chappelle. It is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. And we will find out what the mayor has in mind for 2024 right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long-ago book, like I do, about Mickey Mantle, signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah, 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. Sam the Minuteman is once again hosting his rockin' New Year's Eve party on Saturday, December 30th as the UMass men's basketball team takes on Siena at 1 p.m. Young UMass fans can enjoy poster making on the concourse, a photo booth, a halftime ball drop, and post-game layups on the court. Youth tickets for the game are just five bucks. Bring in the new year a day early with Massachusetts men's basketball by visiting umassathletics.com tickets. 
Go you! Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. pvhabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk, we are speaking with the mayor of East Hampton, Nicola Chappelle. While we were off air, Madam Mayor, you shared with us what I consider breaking news about how your house became a sanctuary today. Mm. Care to share that with our listeners briefly? Sure. I mean, I I, I would prefer them not tell more mice like in North Hampton or West Hampton, but... Um, yeah, with the rain and um, my house being built in the 1800s, the word has gotten out with field mice that they can find sanctuary and a pause from the rain by coming to my basement. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, honesty, right? Or, you know, always or, or when you can. Um, I was I made the show this morning because I had to get up early for the exterminator, and I was not <laughs> going to miss that. I mean, let's, let's be honest. There's no way we can avoid the fact that I'm not a morning person um, at all. Like I'm I'm barely like an 11:30 person. So um, yeah, I was up bright and early, made coffee. I'm raring to go. I'm a little you know snappy this morning, um, and. Uh, the exterminator was extremely impressed with uh, the sanctuary he found out in the basement. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I guess that, uh, Mayor Nicole Chappelle, that you will not be receiving the mice vote. <laughs> no, 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 I won't, especially after, oh, yeah, tomorrow is going to be a headache day. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm I'm ready to feel the feel the uh, negative comments <laughs> <laughs> or to feel the mice as the as the as the as the case may be Ooh, pretty yeah. good girl. all right yes, all yes, right yes in addition to this perhaps you could share with us mayor uh what your yes. plans are for the next year legislative mm-hmm. proposals you might make and or accomplishments you hope to accomplish mm-hmm. um yeah so i mean one thing which might actually be uh not so good to the ears of um uh, my constituents and those who do business. Uh, we're looking at some new revenue. We're adjusting our fees to um, be a little more in line with the rest of the area, not with Northampton or Amherst, um, to put some new reverent, revenue in between inflation, um, but as well as just the cost of the professionals that we need to do inspections and whatnot, um, also process different fees um, for services, we need to go a little bit um, up in in that in the new year. Um, with like, there's a whole different set of expectations among our constituency 
um, that's wonderful. And we don't want to drop anything um, that we have done, and we don't um, and, and we don't want to miss the mark when we're hearing people talk about what they'd like to see um, in East Hampton, what's offered, what's supported. So that's that's one piece of breaking news. Uh, we'll see the fees go into action a little bit after July. I mean, January 1st, a lot of them at the beginning of the next fiscal year, July 1st of uh, 2024. And um, the others, yep. Yeah, no, I, I understand that's not going to thrill people to understand the fees are going up, uh, but I mm-hmm. expect they're going to pay for necessary operating expenses. Yes, yes. As a practice. No, absolutely. Matter. Other things uh, yeah. you could tell us on the horizon for the city of East Hampton in 2024? Um, you know, um, a lot of administrative things. We're looking to go out to bond um, between spring and early summer to uh, uh, pay for the rest of the school, Mountain View School. Um, so we're doing a lot of updating of financial policies and practices, switching over to new financial software. Um, that we're actually really excited about because the software we're using right now is ancient and only used by, you know, two other communities in Massachusetts. So that's super exciting um, for, for us and, and, and for the residents. It, it's helpful. I have a, um, I have a more, question for you, yeah. Mayor, if you might. Yeah. Um, it's been an enormous story in Northampton and in the surrounding area, what is happening to Main Street. There are plans in East Hampton to significantly Mm -hmm. redo uh, the main thoroughfares in East Hampton and to replace century-old pipes underneath the streets. What's the status on that project? It's going forward. I was going to hop to it uh, as far as public. We've spent a lot of time over the last two years about public engagement, but public engagement and including or, or reaching out very authentically to those we don't see at those public engagement opportunities. Um, and we're really excited to launch that in earnest um, this little bit this winter, but mostly spring and fall, um, spring and summer, public engagement, um, very creative ones around Main Street, around what's going on at the mills, um, what's going on in New City and Pleasant Green. And, and get a lot of input and direction on, um, you know, kind of the storyboards of what, what these areas of our city can bring. Um, we have successfully um, have funding for all of those projects to begin, and um, a $13 million commitment from MassDOT for our Main Street um, redesign, and that's sort of, we've had a couple of public hearings, and now... The the, um, the engineers and whatnot are drawing board, uh, making adjustments, but also um, getting ready to present more storyboards to the public. Um, and you know that's we've again we've spent a lot of uh, time uh, looking at engagement, looking at who comes, who doesn't come, um, and hoping hoping to strengthen that outreach. And we will start those public hearings. Um, I, I will say, I guess, unfortunately, or, or, or a challenge that will come up is what's starting in my administration will actually be implemented in the next mayor's administration. So very similar to Northampton, you know, the, you know everything happens a little slowly and very methodically in municipal government. 
it will be a similar situation as Northampton. One, one mayor starts it, one mayor finishes it, and in between, it seems like five years because it is five years to, to get, do these projects, and people forget in the middle. So can you give us a mm-hmm. date when approximately uh, the rubber would hit the road, or I guess the heavy equipment would hit the road to start digging? Um, oh, I'm sorry. The exterminator just said something. Um, <laughs> <what> about, <laughs> Maybe we should get the exterminator joking. on the show. What the heck? That's yeah, actually can. really exciting. Yeah, Ethan. Hey, Ethan's awesome. <laughs> uh, Ethan and I, I'm going to make them breakfast next time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ethan, Ethan can do yeah, anything he wants. He, he just pancakes, eggs. Yeah. That's, I, that's I my love dog what, who doesn't like Ethan. What yeah, an, it's just real life in a mayor's house. I mean, this is where it goes. What um, an august position the mayor of East Hampton holds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the shovels in the ground of Main Street, we're looking, we're hoping, in 2027. Okay. Um, and we're working very hard to attach that to a road improvement project that will go up Route 10 towards Northampton. Is, is the idea. So, um, you know, if you have strong feelings about construction traffic on either side, whether you like it or you don't like it, um, it's going to be with us probably through, I don't know, the last time I calculated it, it was like 2030. Wow. Well, we leave yeah. it there. This has been Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. Mayor of East Hampton, Nicole Chappelle, thank you very much for being up and so caffeinated today. We really appreciate it. I well, thank you. I'm. I will follow. I will schedule my extermination uh, <laughs> dates accordingly. It seems to work for everybody. Thanks so very much. Coming up, we're going to be talking about affordable housing and unaffordable housing with Massachusetts law reform attorney Judith Lieben right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Heavy rains overnight triggered a combined sewer overflow in Holyoke and likely at other points along the Connecticut River as well. More than 6 million gallons of stormwater runoff and untreated sewage were released in Holyoke, and residents downstream are advised to avoid contact with the Connecticut River for at least the next 48 hours. Flood warnings have also been issued for many low-lying areas in western and central Mass. Calls for a ceasefire in Gaza continue locally as the war between Israel and Hamas carries on. On Saturday, beginning at 6 a.m. in Northampton, unified voices marched through the Pioneer Valley to call for a permanent ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. The walk lasted 25 miles, symbolizing the length of Gaza, and for over 12 hours, over 600 people marched the whole way or a portion of it. They made their voices heard with signs, chants, songs, and prayers. A hiker was rescued Sunday afternoon after being stranded between Mount Sugarloaf and North Sugarloaf. South Deerfield Fire, Deerfield Police, and EMS were all requested to find the hiker, and they brought in the Western Mass Regional Technical Rescue Team, the Department of Conservation and Recreation, and the drone team from the Greenfield Fire and Police Departments. The hiker was recovered without injury. A second alarm fire broke out Saturday night at 126 Charlemont Road in Buckland. The first crews on scene reported a fully involved structure fire with flames visible from Route 2. After firefighters contained the fire, it rekindled and an excavator was brought in to access the hot spots. The family is receiving assistance from the Red Cross. For today, heavy rain this morning. It'll be windy. 
High temperatures 58 to 62, but temperatures will be dropping off this afternoon. Tonight, chance for an evening shower, otherwise mostly cloudy and breezy. Overnight lows 34 to 38. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, chance for a shower. Highs in the low to mid-40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. The holidays, baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. I'm Tony Warden, President and CEO of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'm excited to announce our partnership with Community Action and our sponsorship of their VITA program. VITA stands for Volunteer Income Tax Assistance, and we need your help. Thanks to the support from Greenfield Cooperative Bank, we're expanding our reach to help more people than ever file taxes for free. Our IRS certified volunteers will prepare taxes for low-income households at clinics in Greenfield, Northampton, Orange, and for the first time ever, where? Make it your New Year's resolution to support your neighbors and learn a new skill. Training provided, no prior experience necessary. Let us know you're interested by January 1st. Visit communityaction.us slash taxes to join our team of amazing volunteers. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We have been covering housing as a topic, as a critical need here in Western Massachusetts. We have been covering that topic on this show for a long time. We have been talking to our elected officials about it. And very recently in the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder, there was a long article about housing development and or housing lack of development for affordable housing. And in that article, uh, an attorney from the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute, Judith Levin, was quoted at length. Judith Levin joins us. She began her legal career as a legal services attorney uh, and then and has been since 1989 a housing law specialist at the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. Mass Law Reform is a Boston-based organization that provides statewide advocacy towards the goal of achieving social justice for low-income people and communities. Attorney Judith Lieben, thanks so much for being with us today. You were quoted, well, as being, how to put this, unhappy. Now, that's not quite strong enough, but I don't want to cause difficulty for MRI. Uh, with regard to the housing programs, which I know uh, as a general matter is of enormous concern for you and you have dedicated your legal career towards trying to achieve affordable housing. You were quoted with regard to a program called the Housing Development Incentive Program, 
HDIP for short, I understand, and you are highly critical of what the state is doing. So I'd appreciate your telling us what it is that the state has gotten wrong or right. Okay. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Bill. Um, let me tell you what HDIP is generally. This is a taxpayer-funded housing subsidy program, and we've certainly heard about a lot of housing subsidy programs, but this is a program that provides millions in tax credits to developers only of market rate and luxury housing in 26 what we call gateway cities. HDIP doesn't support any affordable housing. Every one of the thousands of HDIP apartments is unaffordable by definition. This program targets smaller households with disposable income, mostly, not always. There's no limits on the rents that can be charged in these publicly subsidized projects. The rents are whatever the market will bear, and I don't have to tell you what the market is like, uh, even in Western Massachusetts and all over the state. And often, HDIP rents are insanely high. I think, although I'm not entirely sure, that it's the only housing program in the country that subsidizes exclusively high-priced housing with no affordability at all. Okay, I don't get it. Why is Massachusetts subsidizing housing, affordable housing for the rich? Well, if I may, can I tell you to what extent, first of all, we are subsidizing, and then I'll answer that? Yes, please. Okay, so what are we spending on this program? It's, it is a tax credit program, so we're spending, our, we're spending our tax dollars. So far, we've spent $90 million for about 4,000 market rate apartments statewide, because what I'm going to talk to you about is statewide, but before we finish, we should talk about Western Mass, okay? Absolutely. Um, last session, at the governor's request in, in her tax bill, the legislature tripled the cap on this annual HDIP award so that we will now, you and I and all taxpayers, will now be paying up to $30 million every year, $57 million this year, indefinitely. These are annual tax breaks and there's no end date on them. So for instance, in the next 10 years, we'll be paying about up to about $327 million for an additional 12,500 units of unaffordable housing. So it's, it is not a small program. It is a significantly sized subsidy program that only subsidizes high-priced housing. But one more thing, if I may, just before you, just remember the context that this, that this happens in. I don't have to tell you and your listeners about the affordable housing crisis that hits lower income people the hardest. But if things couldn't get even worse, um, the, it is expected that our tax revenues are going to drop in the next year or so, perhaps by as much as $800 million. At least that's the prediction. So it's important to remember that every housing dollar we have is precious and it has to be spent where it's needed. No subsidy program should ignore that need. Budget does. Okay, I, that's my speech. I don't understand. Why do we need to subsidize high-priced rental housing? I assume it's rental housing we're talking about. 
but maybe you can cl clarify that. Um, but why, if, if it's going to be market rate housing, don't developers have enough incentive called profits <laughs> into, to engage in and build more unaffordable housing, unaffordable okay. to most people? I think I think to answer that because it does seem counterintuitive. Why 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 are we paying for high price housing? There were some very good reasons for the beginning of this program back in 2010. Um, HDIP housing is in gateway cities. There are 26 gateway cities in the Commonwealth. Very briefly, there are smaller cities, population 25,000 to I think 250,000. Uh, below average in income and educational attainment. They, they are cities that at various times were, could have been industrial cities, but are, had now been, and, and at various times have been at very hard times. So in Western Mass, the five gateway cities, I hope I can get this right, are Springfield, Holyoke, Pittsfield, Westfield, and Chicopee. Um, however, the 26 cities so when this program first started, it was right after the foreclosure crisis, right at the tail end of the 2008 recession. There were 11 gateway cities, and these the foreclosure crisis and the recession had hit most of them very hard. Their downtowns were in very tough shape, and leaders believed that they could not attract market rate developers to build housing and especially to revive their downtowns and they needed some help to do that. So it started as a $5 million tax credit program, specially aimed for places that were in tough shape and wanted to, sorry, my phone is ringing, and wanted to improve and wanted to improve their downtowns. And then times change. Now we have 26 gateway cities and um, it's like Dickens. It's like not a tale of two cities, but it's a tale of 26 cities. They often bear no resemblance to each other. So we've got Quincy and Barnstable and Malden and several cities like that with very strong downtowns where developers are flocking their booms in, in, in market rate development. And that's on one end of a scale. Nevertheless, They've got a lot of HDIP funding. They got help building, even though developers were there without them. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got cities that are still struggling. I would just like to um, amplify that, Attorney. Uh, my understanding is that what is the motivation was to attract um, uh, middle-income people to downtowns in these gateway cities so that um, if it was only people who were low income, that wouldn't have the kind of stimulus effect the concern was as having middle class people. But developers didn't want to develop downtown because it was too expensive to develop in downtown. So these, these tax credits were in the nature of a subsidy to attract more development in order to attract more middle class uh, dwellers into downtown. Do I have that right? Um. Often they, at the beginning at least, they describe it not so much as a housing program as an economic development program. Um, and I see the world in terms of housing and who lives in the housing and the description often was it's an economic development program. The answer, I think you're basically right and that was true at the beginning and it can be true for downtowns and communities 
which fear that they cannot attract market rate developers for one reason or another and need some help to do that. Most of the tax credits and most of the units are, are not in those communities. They are in the broader greater Boston area and Worcester. Almost 70% of the credits have gone to what we might call stronger market areas where you wonder why on earth should we be paying this money? Uh, should we be putting out this money for this housing? And if I may, can I take Worcester as an example? Is that okay? Sure. Okay, so Worcester, as, as baseball fans know, is now the home to Polar Park. And the area in downtown Worcester and around Polar Park is an absolute magnet for market rate developers and high-rise luxury towers and all the things that go along with it, the cafes, the, the night spots, all of it. Thousands of units of market rate housing have been built yet, and so it's a popular place to go, yet we have paid about $14 million in HDIP funds for about a thousand units of market rate and very high priced housing. We're talking 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 a month because there's no limit to these rents. When, when you're talking about a city that is on the rise, whose downtowns are booming and who praises itself and who, who praises, praises those developments every day. At the same time that that's happening, and this is true in almost every gateway city that has the market development boom, at the same time that that's happening, ordinary people and average people in those cities are having a harder and harder time keeping up with their rents, which of course are rising, fearing the kind of housing instability that 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 is that is happening in these cities, worrying about eviction and worrying about displacement. So you have two worlds operating at the same time and we're subsidizing to some extent both of them, but to a great extent, um, the high price market. Okay, so you're a housing specialist, Judith Lieben. You've worked on this with the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute for decades. I don't understand why, if there is development, that it's not mixed development in the sense of there are some market rate units and there are some uh, s subsidized units for low income or middle income people who need th that that help, that financial assistance in order to live there. Why not make HDIP a uh, development program that has both, uh, well, not both, but all economic strata uh, able to uh, rent these apartments. Can you help me understand that? Yeah, we've been working towards exactly that goal in the legislature so far unsuccessfully and with the administration so far unsuccessfully, which, which is this. We've been accused of trying to just cancel this program or have it be an affordable housing program, and that's not what we have been proposing. What we have proposed is that there should be a decent share of affordable units along with the market rate units in this program, which is mixed income housing. Mixed income housing, this is a very modest request. Mixed income housing is not, is not novel. Every gateway city has some mixed income housing. And what you've said is exactly what we think should happen. And it has been greeted as though we wanted to throw a bomb on the whole program and, and keep 
the city's very poor, and all kinds of inflammatory remarks, some of which are, are in that article from, from, the, um, from the recorder. Yes. So and, what and, you're and proposing right. is exactly what we, we have proposed. Senator Eldridge and Senator DiDomenico and um, Representative Capano, two of whom are from Gateway Cities, have a bill in the Housing Committee now that essentially says, let's add affordability to this program. However, Bill, what we've learned, and I think from Western Mass compared to most places, is that there are places that may still need the focus on market rate housing. At least they have a, they should be able to make that case. Holyoke, for instance, I think is an important example. Holyoke has just about the highest rate of subsidized housing in the country. How much time do we have so I know? Well, why don't you do this answer briefly? Okay, I'll answer it very briefly. Holyoke has a very high rate of subsidized housing in, in the state. And um, if there are exceptions to be made, Holyoke is an example of where if they don't want to have mixed income housing in this program, but only market rate housing, well, that exception should be considered. But generally, mixed income housing should be the answer. We are speaking with Massachusetts Law Reform Institute attorney Judith Levin. We're going to continue this conversation about subsidized housing for the rich right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. When your child is struggling with depression, anger, school issues, or anxiety, getting them the care they need all in one place can make a world of difference. ServiceNet offers you options. Talk therapy for both your child and your family medication, behavioral strategies. ServiceNet therapists and our psychiatry team work together to help your child feel better. At ServiceNet, we have your back. Call ServiceNet at 584-6855. The care you need is right here, all in one place, at ServiceNet. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
We continue our conversation with attorney Judith Lieben, housing specialist with the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute and expert on the t- issue of housing, affordable housing and unaffordable housing here in Massachusetts. We were talking about the extent of the problem. Perhaps you could share that with us, Judith. How big a problem? How much of a scarcity is there? Well, the estimate's different, but we but based on the National Low Income Housing Coalition estimates, we're short about 175,000 units that lower income people can afford. Um, and that's a lot. And there's no question, but we're also short of housing that moderate income people can afford. But remember, what we're talking about in this program is housing that people with more than moderate incomes can afford, and we're paying for it. Can, If I can, can I tell you who actually would be excluded from HDIP housing? Sure. Okay. Okay, so first of all, HDIP housing excludes people by class, by its very nature. The statute says it has to be at least market rate housing. And so lower income people cannot use this housing, cannot be uh, residents in this housing. So mostly it excludes by class. It has thus far excluded or largely excluded families with children because they're small units with small bedroom sizes. About 70% of the units are studios or one bedroom or shared student housing suites. There's almost no units with three or more bedrooms. So lower income people, families with children, most of them undoubtedly exclude families with rental vouchers like Section 8 or mass rental vouchers because the rents are too high for these vouchers to cover. And it is possible that they exclude that these places we we don't know what the ratio we don't know anything about this program because the agency that administers it the state department of eohlc executive office of housing doesn't put out data the only way we found out about this program and wrote a report was by doing a lot of public records requests so for instance we don't know the things we always know about subsidized program who lives who lives in these in this housing what's their income what's their race do they have children those things aren't published so there's a lot of work to just find out about it okay so sticking with this idea of a lot of work to do uh, representative lindsay sabadosa on friday on this show told us that she was expecting the legislature to be significantly involved with the housing crisis in this upcoming year beginning of the january session of the legislature I believe that this HDIP program, Housing Development Incentive Program, is actually quite popular, has been popular with elected officials. So talking about work to do, it sounds like uh, mass law reform and advocates for affordable housing have an enormous amount of work to do in the coming year. Care to comment on that for us? Right. This has been, you know, once once you tell taxpayers about this program, they say, "I, I can't believe I'm doing this. Why are my taxpayer dollars going this? But it's an ex- the most powerful folks in the state are very supportive of this program. Remember, there's 26 gateway cities. Even though they're very different, there's a gateway cities caucus. They're very powerful in the legislature. And the leading, the leading legislators 
are in favor of this program, as is the governor and the lieutenant governor. So this really is a David and Goliath um, effort. And we will keep making that effort. And in fact, for the next legislative year, we hope that the legislature, given the coming shortfall in, in tax revenue and the worsening, worsening affordable housing crisis, that maybe the legislature will rethink and modestly make this into a mixed income program rather than an all market rate and luxury program. Really quickly, Attorney Lieben, I guess listeners who are concerned about this, they should write to their legislators or call their legislators, right? Or they can contact me. <laughs> and, and okay, how do we do that? Um, we have a, a, a <laughs> we <laughs> should I have said that? Um, Probably not, but you can, pe people can contact the Mass Law Reform Institute. Right, they, they can just go on to Massachusetts Law Reform Institute and, and have all, all of our contact numbers. But that's, that's the goal. The goal is to try to convince people that this has gone too far in, in some of the wrong places. And please, let's take some time to rethink it and fix it. Attorney Judith Lieben from the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. Thank you so very much for your insight, your time, and your leadership on this issue. Okay. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are thrilled to have with us on the show today Dr. Giovanna Viana Anthony, a country doctor. Well, sort of. She is a hero in the reproductive rights community, a hero. We're going to know more about that and hear more about that in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, I want to confess that she is a hero to me for another reason, which is she delivered my first two grandchildren. Mm. So as an OBGYN, a personal hero, but you are also a national hero. Dr. Anthony has appeared in specials uh, with Samantha B. She has been featured in national periodicals, and she was at a hearing last week that is critical to the future of reproductive rights in her state and as well across the country. As many listeners know, there has been a focus by law reform groups in particular to go to state courts when freedom of choice and reproductive rights are at stake because the Supreme Court is hopeless. 
but states offer their own laws and their own constitutions. And voters have voted to enshrine reproductive rights in their state constitutions. And there is a case in Wyoming. The hearing was last Thursday. We think you want to know about Dr. Anthony. Thanks so much for being with us. Could you tell us what was at stake and still remains at stake? The court has not yet made a decision in the hearing last Thursday in Wyoming. Sure, Bill, and thank you so much for having me on. I'm really honored to be part of the conversation. Um, so we filed a lawsuit after Roe v. Wade was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that lawsuit was in June of 2022, and it has been making its way through the courts here in Wyoming uh, since that time. And uh, briefly, a history in our state uh, has to do with the initial filing of the suit, which for many states, I believe at least 17 in the U.S., had what were called or what are called Roe v. Wade trigger bans, so that if the U.S. Supreme Court did reverse Roe v. Wade and kick it back to the states, then those states would, would automatically make abortion illegal without any further conversation among their legislatures or with the voters. So we had a trigger ban, and we had 30 days after the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court ruling to um, file a lawsuit, and we did, and we were very successful in achieving an injunction so that abortion could be legal and continue to be legal in Wyoming, at least temporarily. Is it legal today at the moment? It is. It is legal. And I am really proud of the fact that in a conservative state like Wyoming, since Dobbs, we have actually expanded access, which I think is a tremendous achievement. And that's via mail order um, availability through justthepill.org and also an incredible woman and fighter named Julie Burkhart, who opened a clinic in Casper, Wyoming. How many, so we, how many, let me interrupt, yep. how many sites are there uh, in Wyoming now? It's a huge state. Uh, how many sites are there where uh, persons in need of an abortion can access uh, reproductive health, uh, can access reproductive health? So currently, two, my office, and also um, the Casper Clinic. And we also, because abortion is still legal here, there has been increased use of the mail order option through justthepill.org, who employs licensed Wyoming physicians. So when I started here in Wyoming, and indeed when our lawsuit, well, just before our lawsuit was filed, uh, myself and one of my partners were the only providers in the entire state. Wow. Could you tell us a bit more, please, about what the legal theory is since the United States Constitution has been reversed by this very political Supreme Court, in my opinion, imposing their religious and political views on the country in Dobbs and in many other cases as well? We turn to state courts now. Uh, states have their own laws and their own constitutions at play in the case that you have brought, uh, one of the lead plaintiffs in Wyoming. There are state court theories. I think 
I think it's really interesting what they are, and I'd appreciate it if you would explain, explain the theory of the case to us. Well, our case is based primarily on constitutional rights as enumerated in the Wyoming Constitution. And Wyoming's Constitution is unique in that we have an amendment that passed in 2012 that states literally, and I'm not paraphrasing, that every Wyoming citizen has the right to make his or her own health care decisions. And that is an amendment we're leaning heavily on. And I think we will prevail there because the language is so plain. And, you know, Wyoming has historically very libertarian in its conservatism. You know, this is not so much an evangelical, uh, you know, state in its, in its, in its roots, you know, it's much more live and let live. It's a lot more libertarian. And I think that will really appeal to Wyoming citizens across the political spectrum. So the Supreme Court in our state is also very devoted, honestly, to our Constitution. I think they will look at it quite literally. However, the state's argument is that abortion is not health care, and therefore that amendment is not valid. So that's Doesn't one of the arguments they're making. So the state is arguing that the right to health care does not include the possibility of abortion because abortion somehow is not health care? That's exactly right. I, it's a flabbergasting kind of argument. How can, how can and what is the basis for the state claiming abortion is not health care? I, I, I don't get it. Well, they – well, it, it might go back a little bit to 2012, and, and this is the scenario that bit them in the butt a little bit. So in 2012, when this right to make health care decisions amendment was passed, the amendment was brought to the voters as a response to Obamacare. And the legislature here is very suspicious of anything the federal government might be up to, and Obamacare was included in that scenario. And unfortunately, as a result, we're not a Medicaid expansion state for the ACA. However, the wording of that statute that ended up being an amendment was very specific. And the state is arguing, well, we didn't, this amendment didn't pass with the voter, passed with the voters thinking of abortion in mind. They were freaked out about Obamacare. So what we're arguing is, well, the language is really plain. If, if Wyoming voters were so fearful of Obamacare forcing them to buy health insurance, and that was the objective of the amendment, then it should say so, but it doesn't. And it doesn't. And ironically, listen to this, ironically, we have statute in this state that says only physicians can provide abortion care. So our argument is, well, if a physician has to provide it, how is it not health care? The case is now pending in a court in, uh, in – where is the case pending, and is it expected to go to the Wyoming Supreme Court? So last week's hearing was a request for a summary judgment, a motion for summary judgment 
based on the merits of the case because neither side feels that it needs to go to trial. Like we feel all, you know, the facts are present. These are issues of constitutionality. And we're requesting that the judge dismiss the case on its merits. So if she dismisses it in our favor, then the state will surely appeal to the Wyoming Supreme Court and vice versa. Could you tell us what the feeling is in Wyoming about the case? I know I'm asking you to generalize a bit, but Wyoming has a history. It was the first state in the nation to uh, for where women had the vote. I mean, there are other there. And this is very much a women's issue. I'm wondering uh, if you can read tea leaves about where the people of Wyoming stand with regard to the issue of abortion and with regard to this case. I believe that a large percentage and likely majority of women in this conservative state, and maybe men as well, are pro-choice. I think as we've seen in a lot of other red states, this is not a political issue. And I have so many conservative patients who are in support of our lawsuit. You know, you know, govern, this is government overreach classic. You know, and I, I, I just don't think that if this was put to the voters in a referendum, as has happened in Kansas, for example, it will it would not pass. Uh, and I mean specifically, I do not believe the voters would vote to make abortion legal in our state. And I think this is the reason that the so-called Freedom Caucus, or I like to call them the Not for Freedom Caucus will never put this issue to the voters because I don't think they're confident they would win. Dr. Giovannini, Venina, excuse me, uh, Anthony, this is yeah. Buzz. Um, I'm, hi. I'm one, hi. I'm wondering whether uh, the uniqueness of having the Wyoming constitutional provision that you were talking about involving the right of health care access is unique. What can other states learn from your experience, from Wyoming's experience, in this arena of reproductive rights post-Dobbs? What can other states learn? From your experience. Um, You know, I think that the lesson here, and we're seeing this play out around the country, is that the right, women's right to make decisions about their pregnancies is ultimately not political. And this is, something that most people, male and female and otherwise, feel very strongly about and personally about. And it is worth fighting for in the courts. Yeah. And I I think it's worth noting that uh, various state constitutions have been amended by the voters since Dobbs saying health care is a right. Privacy is a right. Abortion is a right. Reproductive freedom is a right. And those states have now adopted uh, freedom of choice uh, as part of their constitutions. So my guess is that this is actually a part of a whole, what is happening in Wyoming, because this is a nationwide push, not being as successful, of course, in the very conservative evangelical southern states. But in fact, many lawsuits and uh, have been successful, a number of lawsuits, I don't want to exaggerate here, uh, with regard to protecting reproductive rights across the country. So I'm, I'm just worried about those 25 or so states that 
don't fit that profile. That's, right. that's well, my concern, well, obviously. Well, that's a very legitimate concern. Uh, Dr. Anthony, uh, when can we expect a decision from the uh, trial court in Wyoming? You know, we think it's going to be several weeks. Uh, the The case is uh, was filed in Teton County District Court, and this county, you know, it has a reputation in Cheyenne of being the most liberal. However, our judge is very measured. She's extremely careful. She's very intelligent. It's a constitutional issue, and she is going to take her time. And she declined to rule from the bench, which I thought was really um, prudent because I do believe that the anti-choice folks out there, you know, they've accused her of being an activist judge, which, you know, she's just trying to follow the law here, and we're just asking for status quo. So I don't see that as an activist. You know, if she decides that abortion indeed is health care, I don't feel that that's an activist um, position to take. But um, I think she's going to take her time and really carefully weigh the constitutional issues. And we're also pursuing um, a, um, a, 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 a what am I trying to say? The legalese is so beyond me sometimes. But we are also making an argument with regards to freedom of religion. One of our plaintiffs is Jewish. And we are also looking at equal protection under the law. And the state has actually had the audacity to say that pregnant women aren't necessarily subject to that protection because they're pregnant and non-pregnant women are not pregnant. <laughs> and we don't necessarily have equal protection under the law when we're pregnant because we're different. So there's some pretty crazy arguments they're making that I just, you know, I, I just don't think the judge is going to go for. But that said, she has been very careful. We are speaking with Dr. Giovannina Anthony, OBGYN, plaintiff in this crucially important lawsuit in Wyoming. She was in the courtroom last week, Thursday, when the case was argued. When we come back, we're going to hear what happened in court, who said what and why right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Have you heard about concierge medicine? It's a different way to do healthcare. A complete wellness package, which includes greater access to your doctor and more personalized care for an annual membership fee. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson. I'm proud of the excellent care that Atkinson Family Practice has provided for 15 years and counting. In addition to our main practice, we're excited to begin offering concierge medicine. Is concierge right for you? Learn more at atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Dr. Giovannina Anthony, who is the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit in Wyoming seeking to preserve the constitutional right to health care in that state. You were in court. The hearing was last Thursday. What was that like? What did it feel like? And who said what? Please, doctor. Yeah, you know, I thought our side was brilliant. Um, we had three core arguments that uh, were presented. The first had to do with freedom of religion and government overreach into people's lives. That's very broadly speaking. The second argument had to do with um, equal protection under the law. And the third argument had to do with an amendment in our constitution that states that all Wyoming citizens have the right to make their own personal health care decisions. And that is a literal statement of, of that amendment in our constitution. And so we had three different attorneys arguing those points. And as I mentioned before, one of our plaintiffs is Jewish and we thought that was a super important component to all of this. And the healthcare decision issue, I feel, is probably our strongest. Um, the state argued that, first of all, abortion is not healthcare. That is one of their core arguments in this in this case. They also argued that, and I found this really interesting, that when life begins is not a religious philosophy or statement it is he called it traditionalist which i found very interesting as well um and that really that really bothered me personally because i have been present at hearings in cheyenne over reproductive rights and women's health over many years and the folks that testify against abortion rights are almost always making a religious argument you know, and and I mean a literal religious argument with regards to biblical theory and God, et cetera. So um, the state's arguments, in my opinion, don't they just are they just ring false. And I also felt the assistant attorney general did not make his arguments effectively because they're frankly weak arguments. So. Um, the judge, however, asked a lot of questions, and I think she's weighing all of the issues super carefully. And the equal protection under the law issue, I think, is a huge one as well. 
and the state, I think, you know, weekly has tried to invoke fetal rights uh, as part of that. However, we have an amazing attorney named Marcy Bramlett who really showed pretty effectively how women's rights are not superseded by fetal rights and are, in fact, interconnected. So that was that was the those were the core arguments made. What did it feel like to be in that courtroom? You know, we've had several hearings at this point, and I feel like the state's arguments have evolved a little bit. But honestly, I felt at least that I'm exercising our our rights as citizens and fighting the good fight and fighting for what I believe in. And I am grateful that we have that ability to do at least now in this country. And I'm grateful for that, you know, so I was feeling some gratitude actually, and also gratitude for the incredibly smart people that are representing us, the plaintiffs. I would be interested to know uh, what the state said in response to the argument that your state, Wyoming has a state law, a statute that says only physicians can perform abortions. And the state comes back and says, what, uh, in, 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 in juxtaposition to or in opposition to your argument, if only physicians can perform abortions, how are abortions not health care? It's mind-boggling to me. Can you help me understand that at all? Well, their arguments are not made with regards to the way that statute is literally written. So what I'm saying is, what I can say to you realistically, that statute was created and passed as a barrier to healthcare, right? Because if nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, um, you know, other types of providers cannot provide abortion, then that's a barrier, right? Because we already have a physician shortage in this state, particularly in my specialty. So that statute as a bill was passed into law as a barrier to abortion access. Once again, the state argues that, well, this was not passed as you know, they argue the intent. Does that make sense? Sort of the same with our amendment. Well, the intent of the amendment to allow citizens to have the right to their own personal health care decisions was made because we didn't like Obamacare and the health care mandate, the health insurance mandate. But the law is the law. And as you said, words matter, right? So their argument is that, well, even though we made this law, the intent was not to make abortion or define abortion as health care. So it's pretty, pretty circuitous and not effective in my view. Dr. Anthony, you have received national publicity. I loved your appearance on Samantha Bee's show. Oh, it was so fun. (laughs) That was fabulous. (laughs) And you've been covered in uh, media across the country and of course, of course, across the state of Wyoming as well. I'm wondering if this fight that you have been so prominent in, um, which has made you, I I think it's fair to say, a hero in the reproductive rights community uh, nationwide, uh, has it affected your life in some way that you might share or care to share with us? Affected my life? Yes, this fight. Oh, 
deeply, deeply. Number one, it's incredibly time consuming, um, you know, and I was a little concerned about taking on the fight as a plaintiff living in a conservative state like this in terms of safety for me and my family, you know, blowback from the community or for my patients. But I have had nothing but support and it is so, oh gosh, it's so gratifying to talk to women who are grateful and thanking you and, you know, sending cards and flowers and I've just had nothing but support. So it really has changed my life in that this whole new angle to my role as a clinician is now, you know, I have this whole new role as an activist and feeling nothing but support when initially I was fearful has been amazing. Um, And, you know, it's something that I'm so passionate about. I've always been passionate about abortion rights and never thought, number one, I would be fighting for abortion rights in a red conservative state. And number two, that it would, you know, become a, um, a consuming aspect of my life in addition to trying to, you know, be a clinician and provide for my family. So it has changed my life, but in a way, and always, I would say for the better, the only negative is that we have to fight for it at all. You know, that's, that's something that I find uh, just so sad and, and, and heartbreaking for the women of this country, but it has changed my life. And, you know, you know, honestly, Bill, there are a lot of doctors like me in Massachusetts, in California, in New York, who, you know, can provide abortion services without constantly navigating barrier laws and what's going on with the state and am I in trouble, et cetera. And, you know, I ironically, and I think that's why I've had a little more press with this regards in this regard, maybe compared to other physicians, because I am an abortion provider in a conservative state, and I've been willing to talk about it, and I've been willing to go on the record and and say things about myself and Wyoming and where we're at. Um, So, yeah, it's been life-changing in a lot of ways, but I'm also fulfilling a passion and fighting for what I believe in. So I can stop worrying that you as a prominent activist and abortion provider, you feel safe enough? You're okay? I do feel safe enough, but honestly, you know, these people are crazy, you know, and you never know what will happen. Our, our clinic in Casper was firebombed a few years ago, and I mentioned Julie Burkhart earlier in the program, who's a fighter on every level for abortion rights and a provider herself with her clinics. She has many across the country. Um, but, you know, to to... To be, you know, have your clinic burned down by by people who have no understanding of how important this issue is as healthcare and into saving lives is scary. And I think what's important is that you know fear should not drive our passions. Fear should not allow us to lose our our constitutional rights. We have to fight for them. And the fear aspect has been really effective. You know, a lot of physicians in my field do not provide abortion care because they're fearful of repercussions. 
And that's a tragedy in a supposedly free country like the United States. Bill, you led with this. She is a hero. She is indeed a hero. And we leave it there. Oh, you guys are sweet. Thank you. (laughs) Dr. Giovannina, Anthony, thank you so much for your time, your insight, your courage, your professionalism, your leadership. We are in your debt. You are, as Buzz says, you are a hero. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Heavy rains overnight triggered a combined sewer overflow in Holyoke and likely at other points along the Connecticut River as well. More than 6 million gallons of stormwater runoff and untreated sewage were released in Holyoke, and residents downstream are advised to avoid contact with the Connecticut River for at least the next 48 hours. Flood warnings have also been issued for many low-lying areas in western and central Mass. Calls for a ceasefire in Gaza continue locally as the war between Israel and Hamas carries on. On Saturday, beginning at 6 a.m. in Northampton, unified voices marched through the Pioneer Valley to call for a permanent ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. The walk lasted 25 miles, symbolizing the length of Gaza, and for over 12 hours, over 600 people marched the whole way or a portion of it. They made their voices heard with signs, chants, songs, and prayers. A hiker was rescued Sunday afternoon after being stranded between Mount Sugarloaf and North Sugarloaf. South Deerfield Fire, Deerfield Police, and EMS were all requested to find the hiker, and they brought in the Western Mass Regional Technical Rescue Team, the Department of Conservation and Recreation, and the drone team from the Greenfield Fire and Police Departments. The hiker was recovered without injury. A second alarm fire broke out Saturday night at 126 Charlemont Road in Buckland. The first crews on scene reported a fully involved structure fire with flames visible from Route 2. After firefighters contained the fire, it rekindled and an excavator was brought in to access the hot spots. The family is receiving assistance from the Red Cross. For today, heavy rain this morning. It'll be windy. High temperatures 58 to 62, but temperatures will be dropping off this afternoon. Tonight, chance for an evening shower, otherwise mostly cloudy and breezy. Overnight lows 34 to 38. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny. Chance for a shower. Highs in the low to mid-40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. When you're going through a tough time and want to talk with someone, talk with an experienced mental health care provider at ServiceNet. Talk therapy, medication management, and other treatment options. ServiceNet therapists and our psychiatry team work together to help you feel better. Having services all in one place can make a world of difference. At ServiceNet, we have your back. Call ServiceNet at 584-6855. The care you need is right here, all in one place, at ServiceNet. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers Program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project 
from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarWrite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. If they ask me, I could write a book about the way you walk, whisper. I love that tune because that brings us Megan Zinn. Yes. If you Hi. Ask, if you ask her how to write a book, well, how many words should go in a book? Oh, gosh. Anywhere from like, you know, 80,000 80, to 300,000. <laughs> however long you're looking. Although well, I'm interviewing somebody here who uses very few words for his stories, which is the whole point. Um, my guest is writer John Shire. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And John is, uh, he's taught writing and communications for 30 years at as Nuntuck Community College, which I think I just pronounced correctly, in Enfield, Connecticut. And he writes a monthly column on current events for the Daily Hampshire Gazette. So I feel like I know him because I've been seeing his byline forever. Um, and, and John's new book um, is... For now, 100 100 word stories published by Meet for Tea Press. Um, and before I'm going to have you read a little bit, but tell us uh, tell us what this book is. Well, uh, you had just mentioned that books are often 80,000 to mm -hmm. a lot more words. Uh, this one is not. This one mm -hmm. is actually 10,000 words of exactly. actual literature, <laughs> plus a few for you know the front matter mm -hmm. and stuff. But uh, uh, this is a book of 100 word stories, which is uh, a literary form that is often called a drabble, hmm. uh, like a small amount of writing. 50-word stories are called dribbles. Oh, my gosh. Um, so they're dribbles and drabbles. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, I've been writing them off and on for a couple of decades. Oh, okay. And uh, during the pandemic, I started writing a lot more of them, uh, and it just morphed into kind of a challenge to get mm -hmm. 100 that I thought were good enough to put yeah. together into a book. All right. And that's what it is. That's what it is. Um, well, to start, read read us um, one of your favorites. Okay, we'll read um, a couple throughout the um, throughout the interview. Let's uh, see. We'll jump back in. So uh, this one is fairly near the the front of the book. I, I struggled with how to organize them, mm -hmm. uh, and eventually, finally decided let's do them alphabetically by title. Smart. So this one is <laughs> called Always and Often. Childhood summer at Abigail's grandparents' farm, alone in a field. Sunshine glaring her pale skin. In the distance, a hurricane's leading edge advanced. Roiling clouds, curtains of rain, lightning rending the inky sky. Ten seconds she watched it approach, long enough to know that everything changes. Light, sound, heat, even the air she breathed. Now, a lifetime later, Abigail remembers those ten seconds each time she awaits bad news in a doctor's examining room, a boss's office, a courtroom, a car speeding down an interstate. Storms can't be stopped, Abigail knows, but sunshine always comes before and often even after. 
Lovely. Uh, that was John Shire reading from his book, For Now, 100, 100 Word Stories. So tell, tell us about the title, For Now. What, how'd you choose that? Oh, I chose that because uh, I like titling books for interesting lines that appear in, mm-hmm. in one of the stories. And there's a story that I wrote. Uh, I'll see if I can find it. Well, I should be able to find it because they're alphabetical. Well, they alphabetical. Um, it's called, I thought it was called For Now. Um, Oh, no, it's actually, it's called The Path. Um, so that's one of the lines in it. And Get to the critical part. Is it under T or P? <laughs> <laughs> oh. it, is, it is under P. P yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I alphabetize academically. So, um, And th- there's a line in it, the line for now, which well, I'll read it really quickly. Um, but I like it because 100-word stories are for now yeah. in lots of different ways. It's something you can do right now. Mm-hmm. If you've got a minute, you can read a 100-word story. They'll stay with you for now. They're very immediate, yep. but they'll also come back later uh, as you're thinking about them and they sort of reverberate. Yeah. So I'll read this one really sure. quickly. Um, it's called The Path. As the station wagon glided along the back blacktop, seven-year-old Andy gazed out the backseat window. I love how the road follows this path through the mountains, Andy mused. The road goes exactly where nature meant it to go. Andy's parents... Roy and Stella exchanged a glance in the front seat. It's beautiful, Andy said. Roy inhaled, prepared to tell his son about picks and shovels, about machinery and explosives, about the way humans bend the earth to their whims. Stella touched Roy's arm. Let the boy have this, Roy, she said. Roy paused, then nodded. Okay but just for now. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it, it, it's really more like poetry um, than prose in, in many ways. Actually, I'm wondering if, if um, sort of haiku is to poetry as this short oh, interesting. 100 interesting word is to stories. Analogy. That's, a, that's an excellent observation. And for many years, I wrote a lot of haiku and senru and tanka, other Japanese forms that are very, very brief, uh, full of images meant to give you a, a sort of a flash of insight and inspiration. And the 100-word stories are very much like that mm-hmm. compared with, say, a 5,000-word a story or a 10,000-word yeah. story. You really boil it down to its essence. But just as haiku have a lot of the same qualities that longer poetry does, uh, these stories have the qualities mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. longer stories. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, sometimes unspoken in the story. There are characters, there are settings, uh, there are themes, there are all the things that are at work in longer pieces of literature. You just really compact them and try to boil them down to just what's essential in yeah, the story. Yeah. What got you started in writing 100-word stories? Um, well, uh, I had always been interested in compressed literary arts, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'd always played around with what's often called flash fiction, yeah. sudden fiction, microfiction, uh, stories that are 1,000 words, 500 words, uh, 50 words, uh, whatever really short length you you sort of shoot for. And so I, I got into the uh, exactness of the 100 word mm-hmm. story. I'm a little bit OCD, <laughs> as many, many writers that would are. Make sense. And uh, so it was really fun to write a draft of something, you know, get an idea, uh, write a draft of it in 10 or 15 minutes. That draft all, always turns out to be 200 or 300 mm-hmm. words. And then spend 10, 15 minute bursts of editing 
uh, over the next few weeks and uh, chipping it down yeah, to 100 yeah. words. Take a 20-word sentence and turn it into a nine-word sentence that means just as much, if not more, and eliminate all the unnecessary stuff in that story. Uh, and also, you know, I'm still working full time. Uh, <laughs> I teach I teach yeah. five to six classes mm-hmm. a semester, mm-hmm. and wow. I spend a lot of time uh, on my job. So writing longer, extensive stories, I'm still able to to work on a few uh, as as my time allows. But uh, it's so gratifying to be able to draft a story in 15 minutes and then spend a few weeks editing it so you feel like it's in shape to maybe send out to a literary journal. So the compression really fits in with yeah. uh, with my yeah. career yeah. well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm talking to, to John Shire about um, his his 100-word stories, his book for now, 100 100-word 100 stories, and we'll be talking more after the break. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. What has been the number one scam of 2023? Consumer Affairs polled 18 experts who said financial scams, especially those involving payment apps, were the most frequent and dangerous. Investment scams were second, with romance scams rounding out the top three. Federal regulators want to put alcohol detection technology into all new passenger vehicles in an effort to reduce the number of drunk drivers on the road. The government says in preventing drunk and impaired driving, the effort would effectively save thousands of lives across the country. At the conclusion of the Federal Reserve's December meeting, members of the Fed's Open Market Committee released their projections for 2024. Most penciled in three cuts in the federal funds rate. That rate determines interest rates on car loans, credit cards, and bank prime lending rates. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Megan Zinn, and we are talking about 100-word stories. Yes, I'm talking with John Shire. And John, can you read another one for us before we chat some more? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, Most of the stories are what we would call realistic fiction, because that's primarily the kind of fiction I write. But I love to throw little fantasy or science fiction elements Mm -hmm. in now and then. Uh, So that's kind of the, the core to this one. And it's based on my own experience up to a point. Um, It's called The Response. Henry, the telephone voice, sounded far away. Remember how much you loved reading science fiction as a boy? Yes, Henry replied. 
Remember how you wished the aliens would take you away, the voice asked. Who is this, Henry said. We're here, the voice responded. We've come for you. Henry recalled his childhood spent staring at the stars, wishing for a spaceship to rescue him from his ordinary life. But that was decades ago. He now had a loving wife, three wonderful kids, a sweet dog, a meaningful career, a comfortable home, cable TV. Henry asked, can I call you back? <laughs> that was John Shire reading from, for now, 100, 100 word stories. So is there, um, is there an, an art or a formula to cutting things down or is it just nuance and, 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 and whittling away? That's a really tough question to answer. Um, and I, I think it's a combination of craft and art. Uh, there's the craft of editing. As a copy editor, you've had so much experience with cutting, expanding, mm -hmm. rearranging. And just like any other craft, uh, whether it's woodcraft or metalcraft, wordcraft is a craft that you can develop through experience, through guidance, through reading other writers, uh, reading about their processes. So there's the craft to it that you really develop over years and years and years of working with words. And then I think there's also an art to it. Uh, it's, it's instinct as much as anything else, like thinking about from the perspective of a reader, what would work for me as a reader? And so I try to translate that into my writing. And if I ask what needs to be cut out of this, what can't be cut out, uh, it's just instinct of saying, if I were reading this story, what would I absolutely mm -hmm. need to mm -hmm. know? And what would be very helpful that's not absolute knowledge? Yeah, Bill. I'm wondering whether for your Gazette columns, you do the same thing and go through them and say, is that word absolutely necessary? Yeah, yeah. and is it different when it's it's nonfiction? It's it's different, but it's it's really the same thing. Um, the nice thing about fiction is that I can make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> when writing a nonfiction column, you know, some of my readers will say he makes stuff up anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's it's the same kind of a process, and, and it's funny because I have a 900 word limit for my columns, and that's really generous for a newspaper column. Um, but every time I write a draft, I think, well, I've got this idea I want to explore, but I'm not sure I can get 900 words out of it. <laughs> and then I look at the word count uh, on the manuscript, and it's up to about 2,500. So I have to really... I, I spend... Sometimes I can write a draft of the column in a couple of hours, and then I spend a couple of hours a day for a mm -hmm. week or two crafting it down and yeah. cutting and, and digging through those sentences and figuring out what can stay in and what can go out. And my most recent column, I got, I got a really nice email from my brother-in-law <laughs> who said, uh, you know, I really appreciate your columns and I like this about it, like this about it, but there's something you didn't address. And, and he was right because that was part of the original draft that uh -huh. I had to cut out. Got cut out. What was, so, it, what was the topic of that column? Um, white privilege. Oh, I get that one. I read uh, that one. That was, I, was, I really, that was quite a good column. Oh, thank you. 900 um, words. That's like nine stories in your book. Exactly. For it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that way sometimes because I think, uh, well, I've got to write this column 
how am I going to do it? And I think, well, maybe I can dig back through the hundred word stories I have and just put nine of them together and call it a column. But that that never works. The really annoying thing about a monthly column is that it comes around every oh, month. The nerve. <laughs> Talk to Bill Newman. <laughs> yes, exactly. The nerve of it. The nerve of it is right. It feels <laughs> you sit down to start it and you know it's going to consume an enormous amount of time over the next week or so anyway. And you say, didn't I just do this? Didn't I'm I sure I just submitted one. Yes, but it feels so good when you have it done, and it's good, and it's right. It's, and it's very it's satisfying. Beautiful thing. Um, now, so John Shire, um, you also teach, as you talked about, teach a lot and have for a long time. Do you, um, do you have your students do flash fiction? I do. Um, one really wonderful thing about my job, you know, a lot of it is the meat and potatoes kind of teaching, uh, first-year composition, public speaking, uh, other uh, basic required courses, but uh, I've been able to teach at least one creative writing course pretty much every semester for the past 20-some years out of uh, my 30 years working at Nuntuck. And uh, I do, especially when I'm teaching fiction writing, uh, when I teach just a general creative writing class, I have them experiment a little bit for fun with uh, the really uh, condensed stories. But when I'm teaching fiction writing specifically, that's a, a major part of the course. Mm-hmm. And I think the students love it uh, and hate it at the same yeah, time yep. because they think, oh, that's going to be easy. I'm going to write a story that's, I give them a 250 word limit sometimes. And I'll say, that'd be really easy. That won't take very long. And then they find themselves in the same place I'm in mm-hmm. where they have a really long draft and they have to cut it down. So yeah. they end up... Uh, feeling annoyed by it, but learning a lot yeah. from it. Yeah. One of the best classes I had in college was, it was actually a science fiction, We read, it was an English class on science fiction, and we had, every week we had, a, we had to write a one-page paper. Mm. And um, man, that was hard, but it, it honed my writing beautifully. Um, and uh, before we uh, run out of any time, I want to make sure I say that um, John Shire, who um, I'm speaking with, um, will be reading from For Now, his book, at Forbes Library on Saturday, January 27th, and the time for that is TBA, yes? Probably afternoon. Probably afternoon. And East Hamp- in the East Hampton Public Library on February 14th, Valentine's Day, at 6 p.m. And um, you keep your eye on his website, which is John Sheer, Shire, I'm looking at it, so I pronounce it wrong. Johnshire.com, which is John S H E I R E R.com. And where can people buy copies of For Now? Uh, it's available at the, the Meat for Tea uh, website. That's M E A T for Tea, a wonderful publishing uh, company that does uh, quarterly of literature mm-hmm. and has been publishing books lately. Uh, and it's available on Amazon if you, if you must. I if think you that, must. Uh, I think that might be the way Bill says it. Uh, buy it on Amazon if you must. Or Kobo, which has been, become my new thing Kobo for ebooks. And... I'm doing Kobo for that. Oh, and there's also an audiobook. Oh, uh, wonderful. I did, this is my first audiobook where I'm the narrator, uh, which I have mixed feelings about. <laughs> um, but that's available wherever audiobooks are sold. And Libro is an excellent place to yeah. get audiobooks. Yeah. Yeah, and your Bill. local independent bookstore can of get course. these for you, of yeah, course. Yeah, I, I, yes. assume, I assume you have local business, local independent bookstore can order Absolutely, it for you. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and in the last bit we have, what are you um, what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on more 100-word okay. stories. I just won uh, honorable mention and uh, one of the winners, I don't know which place yet, in a couple of contests. Congratulations. Thank you. And, and I'm writing a lot more longer stories as well, uh, trying to find the time to do that. 
Wonderful. Uh, uh, final question, John. Do, does this impact on how you speak? Do you try to trim your words as you're thinking out loud? No. It, it's, it's very writing specific. I, I am accused, especially by my students, of going on and on sometimes, and my grandkids. So, uh, no, not really. That's the job of a grandfather. <laughs> True. Uh, I, I'm All sure right. there's a lot of listeners that wish that I would adopt that uh, <laughs> perspective. Thank you so much, Megan Zinn. Thank you so much, you, John. John. Good luck. And the name of the book one more time. For now, 100, 100 Word Stories. Available at your own independent bookshop. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Remember to talk to talk and walk to walk. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 